thank you for now, for today, Lord, for the rises up of all, Father God. And we thank you for those that are here this morning to hear the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. selling training programs that help other businesses sell their product to customers. So, in other words, I was selling a program that helped other people sell. There's only one problem. I'd never been in a sales role before. So the first thing my boss asked me after switching to this new position was, how many of these programs do you think you can sell each month? And my reply was, I have no idea, hopefully more than zero, because I was terrified. Like, I felt completely uncomfortable trying to talk to people into buying something from me. But, despite my fear, this was now my job. So, unless I was ready to quit and walk away, which I could not afford to do, this was my new reality. So, every Monday, my boss and I would huddle up and we'd look at our sales numbers and we'd evaluate my performance, discuss what was working and what wasn't, and strategize new ways to get more people to buy from us. And so, I just fumbled my way through this new position. I learned a lot along the way. Some months were really good, others were terrible. Like, this was a nerve-wracking experience for me. And my boss, he was a mastermind at making my nerves even more wrecked. Like, one thing I noticed over time was that when I had a good month of selling, like, instead of him patting me on the back, he simply suggested that we raise the goal for the next month. It was like he was dangling a carrot that was always just out of my reach. It seemed like the unspoken mantra was always, do better next month. And no matter how hard I tried, I just never seemed to be able to measure up. Now, you may not be able to relate to this specific experience, but I think you can still probably relate to the overall feeling in some area of your life. Like if you have kids, you're constantly trying to sell them on something. Like if your kids are young, you're just getting them to do things like brush their teeth, take a bath, do their homework, eat their vegetables, be nice to their siblings, fall asleep at night, or clean their room. All of it can feel like a total sales job. But when they finally do fall asleep at night, you take an exhausted inventory of their performance as a parent. I mean, even looking at their report card or attending a parent-teacher conference can feel like a performance review of your parenting. Without realizing that we as parents, we often think things like, I'll do better tomorrow. I'm going to do better next year on their birthday. I'll do better focusing on their behavior next week. I'll do better being patient using kind words the next time that this happens. It feels like the carrot is always dangling just outside our reach. Like we have very few moments when we stop, take a deep breath, and say, oh, I'm doing a great job as a parent. But it's not just parents who feel this way. We also carry that same feeling as spouses, or as friends, or sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters, as employees, employers, even, yeah, as Jesus followers. Just think about it. We spend more time with ourselves than anyone else. 
that we're able to see our own thoughts and actions and motivations. And when we evaluate ourselves as Christians, the results are simple. We're not measuring up. I mean, let's face it, most of us spend a lot of our lives disappointed in ourselves. And if we're disappointed in ourselves, I mean, obviously God must be disappointed in us too. I mean, He's perfect. Plus, He sees every part of who we are, every single thought we do and think. I mean, how could He not be disappointed? I've spent so much time thinking, God created me, so I know, of course, He loves me. I just don't think He likes me very much. And I thought this because of the nagging sense that I wasn't measuring up to a certain standard. And again, I think a lot of us struggle with feeling this way. And when we do, many of us react to this feeling in one of two ways. First, we may simply distance ourselves from God. Like in my sales job, when I knew I was having a low-performing month, the last thing I wanted to do was meet my boss. I dreaded those meetings with every ounce of my being. I worried that he'd be mad at me, disappointed in me, and I thought he'd lecture me and make me feel even worse. But on the other hand, when my sales exceeded the goals he set for me, I didn't dread those meetings at all. And sometimes it's the same way with God. If we assume that he's disappointed in us because we don't measure up, of course we're going to try to run from him, hide from him, or avoid him. Another way we react when we don't feel like we measure up, we simply do more. Back to sales, this is a very simple concept. If you're performing poorly, you need to do more. Like you need to work harder, work longer, double down on your efforts to produce the results that you want. And again, we often take the same approach with God. If we're not measuring up, we need to work harder, pray more, read the Bible more, try to be more patient, kind, and loving, get more involved in church, invite our best friends to church. But even though these reactions are common, the reality is this. We don't have to feel this way. We know this because Jesus himself addressed this very issue. In the book of Luke, Luke writes of a time when Jesus attended a dinner with a group of church leaders called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were an extremely religious group and had a very specific and very narrow way of following God. And in a Pharisee's mind, following God meant following all of his rules, even the rules around the rules. And once they heard that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, they were skeptical to say the least. So one of the Pharisees, a man named Simon, invited Jesus to a dinner party so they could question him about his claims. And here's what happened. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, of course, this sounds strange to us, but in this culture, it was common to wash guests' feet. Everyone wore sandals, and as a result, their feet got pretty dirty walking around on the outside. Still, this encounter may have felt awkward for a lot of people there. And the dinner host certainly did not like the idea of a sinful woman crashing his party. So here's what happened next. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Now, if you study the life of Jesus, this accusation is a bit comical. The Pharisees were implying that if Jesus really knew that the woman was a sinner, there's no way he'd allow her to be so close to him. But when you look at the accounts of Jesus' life, you'll see that he was around sinners 
all the time. In fact, society's lowliest people actually sought him out. They followed him through the towns and the deserts just to spend time with him. They would risk being mocked by the good people just to be next to him. People who didn't measure up were drawn to Jesus. The lowly fishermen, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. And obviously, this woman knew she didn't measure up to any kind of religious standard. She knew she was a sinner. And that's what drove her straight to his feet. Her appreciation for Jesus was fueled by her recognition of her own inadequacy. Like she did not hide from Jesus because she didn't measure up. She didn't commit to doing more and becoming better. Instead, this feeling of inadequacy, it pulled her closer to him. So then, in response to Simon, Jesus shared this hypothetical scenario. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves them. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus recognized that by the world's standards, this woman didn't measure up. But the truth is, none of us measure up. And the sooner we realize that God loves us anyway, the sooner we'll appreciate his grace and forgiveness. When we realize that we don't have to have our act together, that none of us have to have our act together, we'll be aware of our need for a rescuer. When we realize that we're all sinners, every one of us will know that we're desperately in need of a savior. And that's when we'll have a decision to make. Do we continue to feel like we fall short of being loved by God? Or can we follow the lead of this sinful woman and take our brokenness straight to the feet of Jesus? Can we express our appreciation for his love and receive his grace and his forgiveness? The truth is, you can experience freedom from feeling less than worthy. You can live in the reality of his unconditional love. You can hold on to the unshakable truth that God loves you no matter what you've done. And experiencing this freedom starts with this simple step. Make space for God's grace. And to do that, I think there are three things that will help you feel like you don't measure up. And more specifically, these are three things that are essential for you to know. First, know that you can be real with God. Jesus was so comfortable when sinners followed him from town to town. He went into their homes, he ate meals with them, and hung out with them. Even though a lot of religious people were convinced that God wanted nothing to do with sinners like this, Jesus came to earth and proved otherwise. We can dig into our lives, look at the ugly stuff, and bring it to God. He is not going to freak out. In fact, he already knows it's there. And when it comes to our sins, there's no better place to be vulnerable than with our Savior. Because that's when we can finally admit we're sick and that we need a physician. Second, know that you can worship God. The woman with the alabaster jar brought what she had to Jesus, and she worshipped him. 
with it. She didn't pretend to be someone she wasn't. She didn't cover up her sin with pride, and she didn't stay away out of shame. When we're aware of our need for God, it can fuel a greater joy to our worship because we're worshiping a God who loves us no matter what. And finally, know that you are loved by God. God does not wait for people to measure up in order to be recipients of his love and grace. He loves you and me exactly as we are right now. In fact, the more we understand that we're loved by God just as we are, the more we'll appreciate Him, which will in turn motivate us to follow Him. His love for us is unconditional and it's extravagant. So, every time you feel like you don't measure up, allow that feeling to be a reminder to make space for God's grace. You don't have to run and hide. You don't have to work and perform to earn your way back into God's love. You don't have to impress God with how much you're capable of doing. You can just run to God, be with Him, and be loved by Him. And He longs to do just that for you. Amen. All right. I guess you want me to come over there. Well, I come over there. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Make space for God's grace. All right. We can get started with the questions. Who got the questions? How success measured in your job? Is that the question? All right. How is success measured in your job? And been off work too long. All right. Well, let's put it this way. How is success measured in your life? How is that? Let's look at it that way. Some of us here doesn't, it's not working at the time. So how is success measured in your life? Now remember, success can be uh, looked at in several ways. It doesn't mean you have to have a lot of money or you done hit the lotto or you're living in a million dollar home, success can be that you have overcome some things in your life. Or you have made space in your life to have accomplished some things that you have been trying to accomplish in your life. So success can look like just overcoming putting down some things that you have been trying to get rid of in your life, overcoming uh, a sin in your life, or trying to say that you're trying to better your life in this area, trying to start a new hobby in your life. Success can look all kind of ways in your life. So what success have you overcome in your life? 
Miss Pammy. God showed them. All right. Um, I have two children that are grown and doing wonderful. My husband and I are doing wonderful. So God has showed us that just don't give up on him and he won't give up on us. All right. How much more successful anybody could be. All right. Amen. Amen. Mrs. Hill. Okay, all right. You accomplished some goals this year. All right, you set some goals and accomplished some goals. All right, all right. Anybody else? I guess in regards to success, I would say one of the different stages of life. Oh. Bring different successes and she said different goals. All know? right. Before my son, I had different success and different goals. Now things change, and he kind of steers, you know, what I need to do. Okay. Him. All right. All right. So, so you. Okay. So you had different stages and and success. Right. Different different changes went on. Okay. Oh. Like you said, different. Different goals. Okay. You know, right. now, a career uh, having that is not as much of a success as building a family. And okay. My son. Right. All right. Amen. Amen. All right. You have anything, madam? Okay. All right. What about that, that young man beside <laughs> he thinking. All right, we're gonna let him think. Marinate on that a while. <laughs> okay. All right. What's question number two? Have you ever used that word metric to measure your relationship with God? What do you think a good job looks like? Have you used similar metrics? To measure your success with God, your relationship. your relationship with God, and what do a good job looks like? Oh. So you use similar metrics to sustain your relationship with God by the things that you do for God in your relationship to God. So what is the ways that you 
in other words, how do you build your relationship with God? What be obedient as you could. Faithful Christian. Okay. Great mom to my children. At least I think the best that I could be to my children. I'm a good daughter to my mother and I. If I'm your friend, I'm gonna be a, the best friend that I could be possibly to you. So. And you're a good wife. That's what I'm saying that part. <laughs> yeah, I could testify to that. I'm a little prejudiced, y'all. I'm the husband. <laughs> uh, and what's the second part of that question? What do you think? What do you think a good job looks like? Now, 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 uh, I don't want you to get caught up in believing that a good job is a perfect job. Right. I think it's something we should. I do think that a good job is a lot of. I mean, if don't nobody in the world have to work, I think most of the world probably would. But my idea, personal. Is, I believe it's something. All of us do some things we don't like to do, but it puts food on the table and it keeps a roof over my head. But I, I think that a job would be primarily uh, something that you really enjoy doing because I believe that your heart would be more in it. You know, if you're around people that you know accept you. Okay. How many try not to get angry with people every day? How many try not to tear somebody's head off that you don't like? You try to treat them nice, even though they get underneath your skin. Mm. How many try to be pleasant on the day? On, on a daily basis, you try to treat people with respect. And sometimes you don't always get that back from people. That some people will make you just go off when you don't want to. You ever got mad at somebody and you had no intentions of getting upset with this person, but this person just pushed your buttons? They, they, they just automatically just push your buttons. You, but you know. those are the type of people that I, I'm going to either take it or I will quit. And do what I read about quit, I'm going to either take it and try to accept it or I'm going to leave you alone and get away from and, it. And, and, I just, and I try just to get away from because it. I think that it's hard to really be around people that disrespect you all the time. You could try your best to pray for them. And you can some people are just hard to get along with, and then you find a lot of people are just so uh, very ungrateful. Yeah. Some people don't care what you do for them or how you do it. They're going to treat you bad regardless. So instead of always getting angry because when our anger can do sometimes, and most people, it, it don't be nice sometimes. Yeah. You know? And that's because we're human and we're flesh and blood. Right. You know, but we try to do it the way God say do it. But some people, like you say, it just 
to just push your buttons the sometimes wrong way. Sometimes you have to be, sometimes you just got to be firm and let people know what you want them to know. You have to mean what you say and say what you think. How many of us try to try to read our Bibles every day? And sometimes you just don't do it. Every day. Sometimes we set a time aside and we say, well, at this time I'm going to pray. And you miss that time sometimes. See, a good job don't mean that you're going to be able to do this at a certain time every day or you're going to do this. You're going to be able to do this all the time. Or what a good job means that you're going to put the best effort that you can at it. You're going to do the best that you can at it with the help of God with you. As Paul said, he noted he see two things fighting within him. With his mind, he want to serve the Lord. But he sees something else working in his members against him. So there is something else that's fighting against what you want to do within you. So how many times have you been in that type of situation where you wanted to do the right thing, but you end up doing the wrong thing? you miss Pammy. Miss Pammy. <laughs> Are you ever disappointed in how well you're doing as a Christian? Are you? How does that make you feel? Do you think your performance affects God's view? Did you put your answer down there, Miss Debbie? Mm. Have you ever been disappointed in 
your actions as a Christian and how do it, it affects God's view of you. Have your actions ever disappointed you as you profess that you are a Christian? Well, has it ever disappointed you? This is my third marriage, Darren. But I'm going to get a little deeper in this. I've had husbands that have cheated on me and lied and deceived and was deceitful. And every husband I had, I met in church and they claimed to be men of God. And they all cheated and lied and slithered and deceitfully cheated on me and stuck behind my back and watched things they shouldn't have been watching on TV and telephones and cell phones and just did all kind of low-down dirty things, mistreated me, mistreated my children when they were little kids. Of course, this is my daughter, this is my baby, and this is my grandson. So as a Christian, it wasn't using profanity, but it was just some things that I didn't think it can get deeper than what it was in me that that anger was kindled just from those things because I tried to be the best wife that I could go be. And everything that the Bible said, I want to be this great wife and this virtuous woman. And I felt like every time, every time, Satan would send his sons with their tails hid down in their pants and their horns up underneath their hands. And I just couldn't take it no more, so I blew my top. And I just, I just, I, I don't think, I didn't use curse words, but I don't think at the time that I reacted like a Christian, but I think that I reacted as a human being, a woman that wanted the same respect as I was giving my husband, the same loyalty that I gave him, because if a woman loves God, she don't automatically love her husband. And I always felt like a woman would have a problem with obeying her husband and doing what she needs to do and he's expecting her. Because I do believe that a woman would much know that she think it changed the view of how God viewed you? I think that God, see most of us paint a picture of God being a monster. You understand what I'm saying? But I think that as a woman most of the, the Bible is one thing that is so misunderstood. I think that uh, 
God's view of men without me using profanity because he gave us permission. He said, be ye angry, but sin is not. God's anger did not come out as vengeance and cursing people out and killing people hurting people. But it came out as a gentle thing with teaching us how to be and how to react. But I think that God looked at it as being a normal reaction more than as his daughter. I didn't divorce right away because of the simple fact. I stayed in a marriage like that for years and years because I didn't want to listen to God and that my love was so strong for God that I stayed in it. And then when I felt like um, God wanted me to depart from being treated that way and get my kids out of that kind of a lifestyle, I did. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Way you was action, no. acting. I don't know. I think God's love is unconditional. That's right. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. 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 All yourself a Christian um, be disappointing of your actions uh, yes well but, with me number one I don't call myself a Christian I know, know that, that you I are a Christian, Christian. I so I know that I have that special relationship and close relationship with God was I disappointed in the way I reacted uh, a little because I've always said, well, you know, sometimes I tell the guy that you, you can be on the outside with your men. You know what I'm saying? You can say, well, if that never happened to me, I would just leave him. But when you love God and that love you have for God is not so easy. I've seen women stay with men and be misused and abused and mistreated. And I've seen men also be misused and abused and mistreated by their wives. I've seen good men that that, so I'm not just 
can feel disappointment it, 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 it doesn't change who we are though we can feel disappointment in, 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 in our actions because we know that 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 we want to do better and disappointment is just in, in, in a Christian's life it's, it, it's, it's just simply conviction that because it, it, it reminds you that you have a God that that you love and you didn't want to let him down. But can it change the view of how God looks at you? You're going to always be his child. It's like a father looking at his son. You're going to always be his son. He's going to always be his daughter. He's going to always love you. Not do he want you to step out of line. No. Do he want you to go astray. No. But you're going to always be his child. He's going to always love you. Because he died for you. Okay. What's the next question? What's the chapter? Luke 7, 36 to 48. Luke 7, 36 to 48. Now, who got that? Who can get that? Right here. You got it? It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, "Is this man, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner." 
two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Okay, praise the Lord. Now, let me just give you uh, a quick insight to, uh, to this passage. First of all, the woman didn't break into the house. The, the, when there, the custom was, whenever there was a prominent leader, uh, some you had a dinner and you had some special guests over, uh, people would come into your house. Uh, if I had to do business with you and you you was having dinner at a certain time, I would come to your house and catch you at home at that time. So people would be standing around while you was having this dinner. They would be standing all around against the wall and stuff like this. So this lady, she was able to come into the house because there was other people standing around there as well. Now, as she came, while she was there, understand this, that she realized the, the, the parable that Jesus gave to the, to the story when he said that one that forgiven a little, will, the one that forgives a little and and won't forgive one that has little to forgive. He won't forgive but but a little. But one that forgives much will forgive much. Is uh, you have to understand that if you don't think that you done done much, then you don't you ain't gonna ask but a little forgiveness. If you don't think that you have sinned but a little bit. You don't think that you need much forgiveness. You don't. You think that you are better than the next person. You don't think your sin, in other words, you don't think that you have done much wrong. Your sin is not as great as the next person's sin. You think that, that you are better than the next. Because you're, you haven't done that sin. You ain't done that thing. 
So if you ain't done that sin, your, your sin that you done is not that bad because you ain't done that sin. Because that sin that that person done is greater than your sin. So you trying to come, you trying to weigh the sin. And and they that's what some Because see, this is what he's saying. He's saying those that trying to compare the sin, you trying to say that your sin is not gonna send you to hell. And because this person did this sin, they going to hell. And because you did this sin, you okay. But the Bible said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And for the wages of sin is death. And that death is a spiritual death. That sin, that lie can send you to hell. That theft can send you to hell just like that murder can send you to hell. It all weighs out the same with God. You sent Jesus to the cross with that lie. You sent Jesus to the cross when you stole that penny. When you took that extra seven cent that the cashier gave you and you knew it wasn't yours, you sent him to the cross. Because you didn't do the rape, you still sent him to the cross. You can't compare the sin because the sin, God can't look upon none of it. And it will not enter the kingdom of God. So that is the parable. Oh yeah. You know, you find some people they can say all day long. I have seen preachers stand in all churches right there in that spot that you in and then some of them brothers. Sinners. Slithering back, lying, thieving, cheating, whoremongering, no good, good for nothing rascals. You ever thought that you wanted to say, I know a lot of them personal. And they will stand before a whole room and congregation full of people. And they'll stand there and say, oh, if they'll beat their wives to death, they're going to say, oh, a man that beat his wife is more than a sad man. Or you men running around here with these whores, and y'all running around here, and your wife at home with the kids, and half of the kids in the congregation ain't us. So yeah. you know that God hates it when we presume, well, see, we can presume on God's mercy to Yes, we can. And we can call on God God don't have to do nothing, but I have seen a lot of people, like I tell my sister, they was on God's mercy and they look for ways to justify their own sin instead of going to the Lord saying, Lord, I know I did wrong. And I know you don't accept it because you ain't sin. Please forgive me. Because one thing I learned a long time ago to repent means to turn away from it. It don't mean you say, God, I'm sorry, and then you get up tomorrow morning. 
or the next week and you're going to do the same thing. When you repent, that means to turn away from it, you stop doing it, you don't do it no more, you don't look at it no more, you don't feel it no more, you don't steal it no more, you don't do none of that that you repented from before. A lot of people think because they say, well, I repented, and they know from our God looks at our heart. So we will never forgive them for that sin because God look at my heart and say, okay, you're telling me you're sorry now and repent, but I can look at your heart and tell you we'll do it again next week. And that's what gave us called up in hell because we think that we could fool God and we can't know what is good. No, we can't fool. He said the heart is desperately wicked and no man knows it. He knows the heart is desperately wicked. So you can't fool it. You cannot fool it. And 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 we have to be careful in 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 in, in how we uh uh place ourselves in the mirror. Sometimes we want that mirror to be dusty. Not to see us. To see everybody else but not to see us. We want to clean that mirror so we can be seen in the mirror. So when we go to God we want to go to God and give God us so we can be clean with God. So we can be clean with God. So I think we get, we got time here to close out so we can get ready for morning worship. And uh, we had a good Sunday school this morning. Praise the Lord. Let us have a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for this time. And Lord, we thank you for the fellowship. And Father God, we're getting ready for your morning worship. We pray that the word is being preached, that we be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.